you're listening to Irish Radio Canada at home and abroad and we get the opportunity annually to catch up with the Irish Ambassador and uh, we are about to hear how 2018 has been and how a turbulent 2019 might be because it can only be described potentially as turbulent. Ambassador Kelly, thanks a million for taking the time. Thanks so much Austin. Uh, 2018, looking back, as history, the history books will write it, it will probably seem like a calm year relative to what might be coming. How <laughs> I, know, I know it wasn't a calm year for you. I'm, well I'm not sure it will seem calm uh, to the previous couple of years but maybe you're right it might be calm compared to 2019 but for, for us here at the embassy it was a, a very busy year Austin and a very productive I think and broadly very successful year we were very pleased with the, the progress we managed to make on a lot of uh, on a lot of key issues and it has been such a full year and I uh, that unless and I, I know you have um, you have to keep track of it but for the man on the street it's been such a full year that it's nearly practically impossible to cover the amount that you guys do here since last January. Yeah, it's uh, there are days when you find yourself juggling juggling different things and different different demands. But it's uh, but I have to say these are good challenges, Austin. You know, we've, uh, the fact that we are so busy and that there is so much going on, I think indicates just how much interest there is across so many different areas in the Ireland-Canada relationship. Everything from culture to business to diaspora and community matters to political and diplomatic engagement. On all of those fronts, things are probably I would say busier than they have ever been here. So that creates its own challenges but they're the best kind of challenge. Indeed. So let's talk the political connections to start with. Busy year politically. It, it, it was a busy year. So, so we had, in, in terms of engagement from Ireland, we had a total of eight members of the Irish government, eight ministers here in, in 2018, which was a repeat of 2017. And compressed, I suppose, all told, between Patrick's Day of 2017 and the end of this year, we had 16 ministers. So that's in a, you know, a... Uh, basically a 21 month period so that is pretty intense and I mean to put it in context I think I was looking up the records and I think we had in the previous you know that's more than we would have had in the previous seven or eight years combined so it does indicate that there's been a kind of a step change in the level of political and diplomatic engagement um, both at a governmental level but also this year as well we've seen advances in the kind of the parliamentary level of engagement and that's that's very important too because of course governments change every few years on either side there will be an election here this year of course and it remains to be seen how that will turn out there are elections probably due in Ireland likely in the next 12 or 18 months although again we don't know for sure so you know the people who hold particular roles at ministerial level change and it's important to build those relationships but underpinning that to the relationship at parliamentary level provides a kind of a bedrock link that, that is, is more sustainable if you like in, in terms of individuals. And we tend to live in a bubble, by that I mean by living in Ottawa particularly and then by living in Ontario mm -hmm. we tend to live in a bubble but Canada is coast to coast and the Irish government ministers took the time to go practically coast to coast. Yeah, or coast to coast to coast, they right. would say here. And I had a little experience of that third coast myself this year, which I'll, I'll come back to. But yeah, I mean, one of the things, one of the first things that was said to me when I came here, with no disrespect to anyone in Ottawa, and I really love Ottawa and enjoy living in it, but the first thing that I heard from colleagues here was just remember Ottawa isn't Canada. And it's very easy to be caught, as you say, in the kind of bubble, particularly in a, in a government town mm -hmm. like this. So we've pushed hard both to engage 
from our own point of view in the embassy and, and personally with communities and with uh, business groups and so forth all over all over the country but also we've tried to push harder to get visiting government ministers to uh, to go elsewhere as well and we've had some success on that front this year we had uh, Kieran Cannon the diaspora minister up in Newfoundland uh, and we will have uh, we will have a minister now out in fact it will be Kieran Cannon again just as coincidence has it uh, in Vancouver and in Calgary as part of the uh, the annual Patrick's Day visit. So, of course, we're continuing very close engagement at governmental level with Toronto, which is obviously the, the business and commercial capital of the country, which Mont- with Montreal, which is both uh, you know such an important historic city, uh, such strong links to Ireland, and also very important from a, a commercial and cultural perspective as well, and with Ottawa as the as the government and administrative capital. But we do have to remember, and any time you get on a plane and fly five hours and find you're still in Canada, you're reminded of the fact just what a big country this is and there are different regional communities and markets that it's important to be in, in, in touch with. The other aspect of that of course is the two-way street and again we contend when you wear one hat to think in terms of the Irish and Canada rather than just including the Canadians going to Ireland. So it's very much a two-way street from it, a political It, it is a two-way street. I suppose we probably if there was one thing we would like to see more of from our perspective here in the Embassy it's more Canadian ministers uh, going to Ireland as well. I mean we have had some who have travelled. I mean we're now into an election year so that's going to become you know, with a fixed election date in October uh, campaigns tend to start very early when you have a fixed election date so I think we're going to have to be sort of pragmatic and realistic about what will be possible in terms of Canadian ministers going to Ireland this year but we have had again the parliamentary layer has been very important there James Maloney our uh, great friend and collaborator who chairs the uh, member of parliament who chairs the uh, the Canada Irish interparliamentary group which has something like 75 members all told in the House of Commons and the Senate here uh, he has been to Ireland in the past year he is a very regular visitor he's actually in Europe again at the moment mm-hmm. and he's keen to uh, he's keen to to continue and to build on that connection both directly with fellow parliamentarians but also working with ourselves here in the embassy on joint initiatives which we've had yeah we had a chat we we had a chat with james before at the end of the year and he told us of his clear connection that that's right from outside of Venice. connected to Bearfield I think yes. yeah we're actually we have friends living as well I must check if they if they know that Maloney's going back but right. uh, but yeah James is very you know James is a, is a very proud uh, Irish Canadian uh, very proud of his heritage and of course his uh, his wife Deirdre is from from Ireland and his father-in-law Eddie Brett is a very prominent member of the uh, of the Irish community in Toronto too so so James is both proud of his roots but also keen you know to to go beyond just talking about that and to to work on uh, projects that are of benefit to both Ireland and Canada and to the relationship as a whole and that's something uh, you know we've been delighted to work with James and we hope that's a relationship that will continue long into the future. Likewise, from a political level, it's very easy to kind of say, well, it's an Ireland-Canada relationship, but it's an Ireland as a member of the EU, so CETA, which took numerous years to get across the line uh, and then to get implemented or starting to get implemented. That's now, in f- uh, I won't quite say yet, in full force, but a lot of progress has made. Yeah. Well, in, in practical terms, it, it, it pretty much is for the, for the purposes of business and their, and their daily operations. Also. And so it's been provisionally implemented since September of 2017. So we're just over a year of it in operation. There are some aspects, and I won't get into the technicalities, that are not uh, in force. But the bulk of it actually is in force pending ratification by individual member states 
Greece and uh, and so forth. But this is how these EU agreements work. I've a lot of experience with them from from previous uh, from previous roles as well. But in practical terms, the agreement is there now, and we have seen in even in the first 12 months a fairly dramatic. Uh, increase in uh, trade between Ireland and Canada off the back of this um, you know we're still waiting to see the kind of disaggregated figures at a sectoral level but the overall figures for the first 12 months have been very encouraging I was back uh, to, to speak at an Ireland Canada business summit in uh, November in Dublin which we hosted at the, at the Foreign Ministry in Ivy House and the Tonish to uh, deliver the keynote, uh, Sam Coveney delivered the keynote address at that and I marvelled at the fact that it was two years from the previous occasion and just how far things had come. We had an absolutely packed house uh, at the summit. We had the, the head of Enterprise Ireland speaking there, very senior people from both the IDA, our investment promotion agency, and Tourism Ireland as well. And each of them had a really positive uh, story to tell about how things had evolved in their areas in the past uh, 12 months. To take the example of Enterprise Ireland, uh, companies, Irish companies being supported by Enterprise Ireland, their exports have gone up almost 20% in the past year. The overall level of trade, uh, export trade from from uh, from Ireland to Canada, and again you have to see you know the details of that to know exactly what what the what the areas are. But the overall level, according to the Canadian statistics, is up by a third in just one year. So. While we, you know, it's difficult to interpret precisely the push and pull factors there, it, the positive trend is very clear, and obviously CETA has, uh, even in its first year, opened a lot of doors and act as a, acted as a prompt for people uh, in Canada and Ireland to look to each other's markets for business. I don't want to move on to trade fully just yet, sure. but while we're still on the political level, Ireland is seeking election to the UN Security, UN Security Council, Council. <laughs> and I'm looking at the pin on your yeah, jacket. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Indeed. So that's a, a very prestigious position to be to be apply, uh, getting, and I do understand it's rotational. Mm. So since you and I talked last, I would imagine that some preparatory work has been happening. Yeah, I mean, the, when, when uh, from my own experience at the UN for many years, when you're running for election to the Security Council, um, like any election campaign, it's fought in different ways and on different grounds in capitals and in New York, and it's a longer-term exercise also. So th this this election will take place uh, in May or June of 2020. Um, we have declared our candidacy many years ago. I think it must be 10 years ago now. Uh, we're competing with. Uh, two good friends and uh, close allies, Canada and Norway, and obviously Canada of particular interest to me, uh, for two seats on the, on the council. And I think, you know, I can say without, uh, without fear of, uh, without any qualms at all, that, uh, you know, all three are very strong candidates mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. all would be excellent contributors to the, the council. Obviously, we feel as Ireland that we have particular strengths to bring to bear in a UN context, our long record of peacekeeping, commitment to disarmament, development, sustainable development as well and the sustainable development goals and that we bring to a kind of a historical understanding if you like of the concerns of smaller UN member states who you know to some extent would many of whom would share the experience the historical experience we had uh, of colonization and gone through decolonization processes and we feel that many of the concerns that they have that are concerns that we would traditionally be empathizing with and that we would be I think a very progressive voice for, for small countries in dealing with very complex peace and security issues on the Security Council. So that campaign is, uh, is fully in motion now, as it is indeed for the other two. 
and we're making our case as they are as well and I mean it's very difficult to know um, I know from experience how these things will go we believe we have a very strong chance of, uh, of being elected but we know that the, both Canada and Norway have, have uh, are strong countries with strong candidacies and we, we respect that too and we'll you know as always like, uh, like any uh, you know Irish uh, national effort it's team effort mm-hmm. and we'll you know we'll be uh, making our case to the day of the election and we hope uh, we hope for success on the political level still you mentioned we have a, a set date here in Canada for an election but uh, given the political arrangements that exist in Ireland and I know the uh, supply and confidence agreement that exists between Fianna Fáil and the government means that uh, Fianna Fáil have undertaken to support the government particularly while Brexit is uh, in the state that it's in but you mentioned that there's strong possibilities later this year or early next year that more than likely there would be an election in Ireland. Yeah I mean I think it's, it's difficult it's difficult to know for sure Austin because as you, you mentioned some of the variables that are at play there I mean the technically the election has to take place before uh, I think it's February or March of 2021 if I'm correct maybe a little later than that but it's 2021 anyway would be the full term um, the initial agreement uh, on supply and confidence was for three budgets uh, the third of those budgets was concluded just before uh, before Christmas in the autumn and the position seems to be that uh, that the supply and confidence deal will run for another for another year and obviously the whole question of Brexit and the need to have if you like a common uh, approach in the Oireachtas uh, and a common Irish approach on this on an issue that, as the Taoiseach said um, in Davos yesterday, is almost an existential one from our perspective. I think that has helped concentrate the idea of continuing the current arrangement uh, for another year. But of course, politics uh, one never knows <laughs> what will happen, um, so you can never be certain of these things. But that's the indication as of now is that the election wouldn't be likely, uh, as things stand anyway, to come before the end of the year. But the difference is, as you say, that it's a fixed parliamentary term system here uh, and you can see the way the political dynamic has already begun to move into a kind of an election phase here and right. things are increasingly seen through that prism which is obviously very interesting. Yeah. Right. Let's hold Brexit for a little later on because uh, a lot of fun to talk about there and uh, the uncertainties but going back to trade and you mentioned the number of um, ministers that had come but also as part of that there are numerous trade delegations that have come over the past year as well. Yeah, that's right. No, I mean, there's the, you know, our colleagues in the state agencies, Enterprise Ireland, uh, who lead on exports, uh, Neil Cooney and his team in Toronto, are active all the time. There are any number of events, uh, both here in Canada and Ireland, in different sectors, in health uh, and in other areas too. And we were talking just this week about some of them in Toronto, that they're engaged in and they are constantly dealing with Irish companies coming over, looking at the Canadian market and bringing uh, Canadian interests over as well to see what the opportunities are. So, so it's a process that goes way beyond the political and diplomatic engagement but I think is very strongly supported and importantly uh, you know supported by that level of engagement too because it does send a signal if you like um, to people in Canada about government backing and support for the uh, for, for our exporters and for our, you know for for our efforts to attract uh, investment from Canada into Ireland as well and that is a, a very important layer and um, you know oftentimes when deals are close to completion is when politicians will become involved as well to help provide uh, the reassurance of that of that kind of uh, that kind of backing as well I mean one of the in terms of the political visits and on the trade side I mean one of the things we were very happy about 
2018 was to have the first uh, agricultural food trade mission uh, to Canada in, in a number of years when uh, Minister Michael Cree, the agriculture minister, I'm sure you spoke to mm-hmm. at the time, and the head of board Beatar McCarthy uh, came with a substantial delegation uh, to Ottawa and to Toronto uh, to talk about you know, Irish food, Irish uh, beverages as well, uh, and to look at market opportunities and try to, and a number of deals were signed around that. So these missions do have an important, um, if you like, facilitating role and provide that sort of level of reassurance of government backing for our, for our companies as well. And of course they raise the profile for other businesses back in Ireland who are looking for markets recognising if someone's gone out before them yeah. that the, the yeah. trail has been blazed in yeah, many ways. Absolutely yeah. and that kind of engagement is very important in that regard and the sort of facilitative role of CETA in making it easier for Irish businesses to operate in Canada is very important for that perspective and we're talking about that this week with the agencies they have seen you know, much more direct approaches from Ireland off the back of that with growing awareness of the possibilities that CETA offers to more easily do business in Canada. And this comes, of course, and we won't get into Brexit yet, but it's fair to say that it does come at a time when companies who might have been very heavily focused on the UK market are having to look elsewhere Mm -hmm. to sustain their business and for for certainty around sustaining their business. And Canada is, you know, a priority market from the perspective of Enterprise Ireland and our other agencies in that regard. When you mentioned the other agencies, of course, the IDA now has set up an office in Toronto and uh, you have a consulate now in Vancouver as well. Yeah, these were two of the big, um, these were two of the big breakthroughs, if you like, uh, in 2018 and I mean they didn't happen just like that, of course, there was the work of many people and, and uh, you know, a certain amount of, of, of uh, interaction with government and so forth to try to, to show the opportunity uh, that was there and uh, I have to say the government with its Global, Ire- Global Ireland programme has been very committed to expanding and indeed to doubling uh, the Global Irish footprint uh, both through embassies and agencies uh, in, the next, uh, in the next six, seven years and the expansion to Vancouver was part of that and responding I think not only to business opportunities um, to the growing Ireland-Canada relationship, uh, setting, you know, in the context of a difficult international trading environment in which Canada, like ourselves, is very open and engaged, but also um, to the huge surge of younger Irish people into Vancouver and on the services side, that's a very important point for us to be able to provide them with the kind of citizen services that they need as well. So the new consulate with Frank Flood, our consul mm-hmm. general, who I'm sure you'll be speaking with as well, general, yeah. is, uh, is now open for business. Right. Um, they're in a very nice location uh, in the centre of Vancouver, co-located with uh, the German consulate there. So it also sends some message about a European Union solidarity in a practical <laughs> way as well that we're uh, experiencing now over Brexit it too and uh, you know Frank is already moving ahead with a number of projects that I'm sure he'll be happy to, to talk right. to you in detail Excellent. about. On the IDA I think for a number of years we've been hoping and certainly the community in Canada and in Toronto in particular on the business side have been encouraging the idea of an IDA office and I think we're at the point where um, with you know a significant surge in Canadian investment uh, into Ireland which the IDA's work has been central to that the you know, the argument for a presence on the ground uh, essentially became irrefutable. So Deirdre Moran, who's uh, still in the process of moving there, but will be fully set up, I think, later this month, uh, is obviously a very welcome addition to mm-hmm. Team Ireland, and we're looking forward to supporting her and the important work that she does too. Now, you did mention, of course, the IDA is focusing on helping investment into Ireland, and yes. there has been a lot of Canadian investment in Ireland in the last 12 months. There really has, and I mean, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of uh, of metrics, the one that 
I like to uh, the one that I like to mention rather than talking about specific companies uh, is to say that um, talking to very friends in the Ireland Canada Business Association which is the umbrella group um, for Canadian business in Ireland uh, that they have seen their membership in the last two to three years go from 35 companies to around 103 now was the last statistic I was told so that tells a story mm-hmm. in itself I think um, of the success of, uh, of Canadian investment in Ireland and the success indeed of the IDA and others in, in helping to uh, helping to make that make that happen. And there are different there are different uh, different if you like trends underlying why so much of that is happening now. And obviously Brexit is one of those issues. Because I know last time I was in Dublin, like we have the um, uh, baseball park here in Ottawa, and walking along the quays in Dublin, I'm looking and saying, yeah, uh, same name there as as That's here. Right. The, the um, that's right. It's a, it's a spectacular success story, yeah. and um, you know, all credit to the Ireland Canada Business Association as well, who have done a lot of work in you know encouraging those companies to become part of of, uh, of what they're doing there as well, which is obviously very important. Mm-hmm. Um, a collective effort uh, is very important in this regard too. And I had the opportunity during the year to do a couple of events with them. They invited me to come back and talk about Brexit in May, and I was just very impressed with the range of companies from different sectors that were there. Uh, their own knowledge about the Brexit story and their their interest in what it meant uh, for Ireland beyond just what it meant obviously for their own businesses which is very important to them but also what it meant for Ireland as a society and for our future and for peace and prosperity in the island. I know it's been argued for many years that in order to facilitate trade in both directions direct links and transportation was critical that has greatly improved yes. uh, even in the last 12 months. No it really has I mean we've seen a uh, We've seen a spectacular growth in the last few years in direct connections uh, to Ireland. We saw the uh, we saw Air Canada services in uh, t- from Montreal to Dublin, Toronto to Shannon come online this year. Next year we're going to see um, we're going to see more of those mm-hmm. kind of links Air Lingus into Montreal. Uh, we will see Wow uh, flight Hamilton. Um, from uh, from Ireland too, we will see um, new WestJet flight uh, from Halifax to Dublin. Unfortunately, the WestJet flight from St John's to Dublin won't be continued mm-hmm. this year, but there will be there will be a flight from from Halifax, and we will also see WestJet, uh, who've just purchased their first uh, tranche of Dreamliner 787 aircraft, uh, has chosen Dublin as one of the three first locations uh, to deploy those aircraft, and seeing it obviously as a as a hub for onward travel into, into other parts of Europe too which is what the, one of the things Dublin Airport has prioritised. And I think is Vancouver on the, the routes now as well? Well Vancouver has, has been on but they've expanded the number of flights uh, Air Canada uh, on a weekly basis to Vancouver and they've upgraded the aircraft I think from the Rouge to the full service so, right. so there will be more seats. Uh, I don't have the statistic to hands but the, but the growth in actual you know the number of seats available on flights to Ireland from Canada is extraordinary and of course it is directly linked both supporting and a result of as well the growth in, in, in tourism traffic so there is a kind of a virtuous circle there if you like as Tourism Ireland continue to uh, their efforts to bolster their efforts to attract uh, tourists uh, from Canada to Ireland these are connections are the lifeblood of all of that as they are of trade too Indeed. so we're delighted to see that and um, and we hope that this will be another very successful year for those new uh, those new flights. Now, on those flights, also of course, the tourist aspect of them we mentioned that has been uh, a real focus and has been a very successful focus of Tourism Ireland. Not just bringing people from North America and Canada globally, but the number of travellers from Canada has grown greatly. Yes, 
Absolutely. I mean, I think the last statistic I saw was that it was close to a, a 60% increase in the, last, uh, in the last three years. And actually, for Tourism Ireland now, Canada is a top 10 market uh, worldwide, um, which is uh, extraordinary. Um, extraordinary growth mm-hmm. um, but even more than that in revenue terms because um, Canadians are very generous and, and spend plentifully when they're, when they're on holidays it seems um, but in revenue terms Canada is now number five worldwide um, from a tourism Ireland perspective so that's really quite an extraordinary development mm-hmm. I'm not sure it was even in the top ten uh, a few years ago so that's again a great testament to the work of Dana Welch and her tourism Ireland team in Toronto and Alison Metcalf in New York who oversees North America as well and it's one of the reasons why there's going to be a full launch uh, separate launch here in uh, Toronto next week of the new tourism Ireland global strategy um, fill your heart with Ireland and uh, I know you'll be there too Austin so will indeed. we'll hear all about it in detail next in fact week. I was listening to where that um, campaign came from oh right okay yeah, and yeah. it was fascinating because I see you have your Fitbit on I do and you know where <laughs> I'm not getting many steps at the moment but <laughs> you know where they came with the programme they sent two tourists around Ireland with a heart monitor oh yes I did so, yes. And no, we've, seen the, we've seen a rush of the yeah. commercial firms very clever, yeah. very clever. Right. Very and clever. actually I was in New York over the new year and I saw um, they received I think a, a, an early budget to, to try out the, the commercials so they were on TV in New York they looked really good <laughs> so uh, yeah so, no, so Tourism Ireland have done fantastic work um, in recent years to really get those numbers up there and been uh, very creative be very creative about it exactly yeah. very creative about it and you know I think one of the things you've seen not just from Canada but for tourism into Ireland in general is much more focused now on shoulder seasons mm-hmm. on you know times beyond the traditional summer season in Ireland a more creative uh, a more creative approach as well and kind of niche uh, tourism too I mean I've heard for example talk about knitting tourism apparently yes. there is a particular niche interest in knitting tourism which is wonderful um, so there's oh, yes, down near your wife's part of the country that's right exactly <laughs> yes yeah we're exactly so so linked into the the ICA and so mm-hmm. forth and uh, but I think they have been very creative about identifying uh, and developing niche areas of tourism tracking the particular interests that people have um, obviously I mean, some of the more obvious ones would be golf tourism for example mm-hmm. where the new flight to Shannon obviously opens up a very direct and uh, convenient access to all of those amazing links courses on the, along the west coast of Ireland and I think we'll see a lot more of that sort of tourism from Canada in, in the coming years especially with the Shannon flight there now but uh, that's probably a better known one knitting perhaps not so well known <laughs> but Tourism Ireland have identified a whole range of these and are customising packages for people interests which is what people want indeed and I know there are quite a lot of genealogy tours and that's right that's a, yeah and things like the epic museum in, in Dublin is very focused on attracting the diaspora and bringing them back that's right and it's, I've been myself several times and indeed when Prime Minister Trudeau visited we brought him there and that's a wonderful experience indeed. a brand new you know state-of-the-art multimedia uh, museum and uh, yeah, I always recommend to people they should give it a look. Now you mentioned that Tours of Ireland are focusing on the shoulder season and I was talking to someone this morning uh, given that we're in January and he was explaining how mild it is so mm. it might be a good opportunity to talk about climate change. Well quite yeah uh, because it's, it's, Ireland is experiencing a 12 month well, season. Well I, 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 yeah I was in uh, Ireland uh, on, on business uh, for about 10 days earlier this month 
and I don't think the temperature went below 10 degrees while I was there and look I mean they, they say you should always be careful about drawing conclusions mm. from from a couple of weeks weather but it is interesting that certainly just talking to people anecdotally um, and obviously I've lived away from Ireland quite a lot in recent years but but people will say they just don't see the same level of frosts in general most winters now uh, and that it's not uncommon to have that kind of you know weather weather that you would associate more with March or April uh, you know around the December January time but I have to say I mean the the experience one experience I did have this year um, which really brought the whole climate change issue uh, into very sharp focus um, was I had the very good fortune to be part of a group um, that of ambassadors that the foreign ministry brought uh, on a visit uh, to the Arctic territories uh, across northern Canada, which is an unforgettable experience mm-hmm. in so many ways, a different Canada that, that unfortunately very few Canadians get to see, and I was very privileged in the position I have to have the chance to see that directly. But among the many extraordinary things we saw, I suppose the impression that, that the thing that was left with me most uh, when I looked back on the week I spent up there and was trying to process everything I'd seen was just the direct evidence of dramatic climate change. And of course, the further north you go, you're, it's like you're looking at a later point of the movie mm-hmm. that we're all in. Mm-hmm. So this is an hour further into the movie than people who live in Ottawa or Dublin uh, are currently experiencing. Um, we visited places like Whitehorse in, mm-hmm. in the Yukon, which has a very modern airport. Uh, I spoke to somebody in the airport who told me that the entire runway, which was an asphalt runway of the sort we're all familiar with, had concertinaed uh, a year previously as the permafrost on which everything is built up there gave way. So it's just one example mm-hmm. of the, the sort of dramatic changes and I was shown a photograph of this as well mm-hmm. um, and it really was quite dramatic. When you talk to Canadian uh, rangers, the Arctic rangers who are affiliated with the Park Service but are often uh, indigenous, part of the indigenous population, when you talk to them in Iqaluit and in places in the Northwest Territory about the experience of local indigenous populations whose traditional lifestyles are being disrupted to an extraordinary extent uh, by what is happening there. They can no longer tell where, uh, where fish and animal food sources will be. Um, they find the appearance of new water routes that weren't there before. The ice flows have become entirely unpredictable. Um, so their, their livelihoods and indeed their lives mm-hmm. are, are threatened by, the, by, by this sort of change. And talking to some of the, we met a number of climate science people along the way. And I remember we did get a presentation in, in Yellowknife, the capital of Northwest Territory. And one hears a lot about, you know, 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees rise in global temperatures as the threshold beyond which, um, beyond which everything changes irrevocably. And the briefings we received forecast that by current rates that by 2090, uh, temperatures in Yellowknife would be 9 degrees higher than they currently are. So you left there with the feel, obviously very disturbed by this, mm-hmm. but with the feeling that when you listen to the debates about climate change you almost want everyone to have the opportunity to see this for a day so it's brought home to them irrevocably Mm -hmm. that this is real and that debates about what's causing it and so forth um, are important but that addressing it really uh, as soon as possible is what's what's most important. And to that end I know in Ireland um, there's a particular challenge because Ireland is so dependent on its agri- agricultural business yes. and you know the food sector export a huge amount of food and yet the one area that has been identified in Ireland as a real problem is the dairy industry uh, yeah. or the, the 
beef industry and dairy, the cattle industry. Yeah. Um, and I think it's something like that there are uh, what more, there are definitely more cattle in Ireland, but six million cattle in That's Ireland. That's right, six million, I think. No, it's a huge issue. And, you know, it's, it's something... Um, it's something that's been a struggle for us, mm-hmm. I, I think, uh, and the government have been have been quite, you know, open and frank about that. That uh, that you know the question of emissions in particular has been a huge issue for us. And I think each country sort of has to look at its own circumstances and try to figure out what it can do best to contribute to the overall climate change effort. And there are many ways in which in which countries can contribute. Um, the issue of how you balance this with your basic uh, economic requirements is a very difficult one, and I don't think there are easy answers there. And I mean, I know that you know the whole question debates have begun in Ireland about the whole question of the revenue side, mm-hmm. if you like, to all this as well, um, and that's obviously a huge debate here in Canada. And I think it's something that there's interest uh, in Ireland in hearing more about the Canadian experience here, which is obviously very difficult in terms of marrying the climate change issue with the practical politics and economics. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for an individual country but I mean you know I, I think there are no easy answers to any of these things but we are going to have to I mean the only answer in the end is collective action mm-hmm. um, climate change knows nothing about any borders mm-hmm. um, and this is a point I often make to people when they talk about you know the drift away from multilateralism in some parts of the world towards unilateral individual action I mean the reality of life is you know that we're more more than ever we're interdependent mm-hmm. now, and to think that one can act alone without consequences is is really just not the case. Um, we talked about um, trade, um, but other aspects of trade, which is a soft sell, but it also affects tourism. It affects so many other things. Is culture absolutely, yeah. and there's a very strong cultural link. And uh, in that aspect, we're talking the arts in terms of be it theatre, be it literature, be it music. Uh, a whole area of, of culture that there's interaction between the two countries. Yeah. No, that is very strong. I mean, it's something that strikes you everywhere you go. And I mean, you know, I'm always sort of careful about cu- culture should, shouldn't be instrumentalized. You know, I mean, yes, um, it's part of who we are is the first mm-hmm. thing that has to be said about it. And it's something that we're very proud of. It's a huge part of our identity, even more so perhaps than for others, for the reasons I spoke about before, at a time when there weren't very many ways to express our identity at difficult moments in our history. We did have our culture, uh, and I would extend that to, to sport as well, to the GA, mm-hmm. which I've always thought of as, as part of our culture too. So it has that deep-rooted identity for us, but it's also an outward expression, if you like, to the world of who we are, and one, I think, for which we are very well known. I mean, they used to say in, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s that the first thing someone from China could tell you about Ireland was river dance. If they knew anything about Ireland, that was what they knew. Right. So that speaks volumes when you, when you, when you think of that. That and the chieftains. Yeah, so that and the chieftains. <laughs> well, probably slightly more niche for them than the chieftains, yeah. <laughs> but when you but say uh, Japan, because I would think of the Yeah, no, no, and the chieftains <laughs> indeed toured, toured exactly, uh, toured and made, made, made records in both places. But, um, but no, I mean, so, it, so it's also a huge outward, as part of, it's part of our identity, intrinsic to our identity, but a huge part of the outward expression to the world of who we are. So in what we do here, we see it as very important to try to support and promote that too. And we're, we have a number of things lined up for this year. I can't really go into too many yeah, well at the moment. But, there, yeah, but we, we don't want to steal thunder. Exactly. We can go back and talk about that again. Yeah. But, um, but there are a number of things lined up this year in that area. And, and um, you know, it's, it's music, it's theatre, it's cinema, it's dance, it's the arts more generally. And, and as I say, it's, it's, it's sport too. You know, I mean, I, I was at the Eastern Canada GA Championship in Prince Edward Island in September. Um, which was a fantastic occasion, you know, 
two days of Gaelic Games uh, football hurling camogie played on beautiful pitches in a place that would remind you of Ireland uh, except perhaps for the fact that it was like 78 or 9 degrees Fahrenheit so it's happening in Ireland <laughs> it's happening in Ireland well, that may happen to you <laughs> but, uh, but no it, 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 seriously it was, a, it was a wonderful weekend and I met with the Premier of, uh, of Prince Edward Island um, the previous day um, and have very good conversations with him and I said to him you should come out for these games and he did he, he turned up uh, and was there for the whole the Saturday morning and he was blown away by what he saw he said this is fantastic he said and you have all these Irish people here and Canadians playing as well so he saw he could see you know as kind of a man of the arts himself a university president uh, before he was a politician he could see instantly what the games offered what they said about us how they brought people together Irish and Canadian like in a kind of a common love of, of sport and broke down barriers and broke down barriers exactly yeah. so you know we had uh, we had teams up there uh, with Irish people um, French Canadians teams who were only speaking French to each other for example right. Right. getting each other riled up before the game all in French so yeah. just a wonderful thing to see because I think we've always tried to make you know, when, when we present our culture to the world, we always try to see it as something inclusive and welcoming. Right. And that's true in music, it's true in theatre, cinema, dance, uh, the arts generally, and sport. So it's very important to us here. So, Ambassador, as with everything else, then we have to flip it back because I remember during the year at the Other Voices um, event that was on in Dingle, where they talked about the 17%, and that was the 17% of Irish who live abroad, but the 17% of people in Ireland who are not Irish born. That's right. So, culturally, Ireland is very much an evolving society. It, it really is, and I think one of the things that probably is a little bit different. Um, to the experience in other countries is just how rapidly that evolution has taken place. And I'll give you the example. Um, when I was back in Ireland recently, uh, I went to visit my old school, Drimna Castle. To yeah, we're going to come to that. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, sorry, I'm sitting yeah, here, no, here at Thunder Good, no, this is but good. Yeah, but but it leads so in well. So as part of the Global Ireland programme that I mentioned, um, one of the initiatives we have is to talk to schools about you know, Ireland's foreign policy, about the United Nations, about why it's important and so forth. So, so I got to visit my old school in, in Drimna, um, which to all, it's Christian Brothers School uh, near the Longway Road. And to, some things had changed, some things hadn't changed. The building stuff looked pretty much the same. There were still one or two teachers around, which reminded me I wasn't quite as old as I thought. Um, but really, the first thing that struck me was just, it was a cultural mosaic. And mm -hmm. when I was in school there in the 1980s, I think... I cannot recall that there was anybody in my class who would have been from beyond about a two mile radius mm -hmm. and almost all from the same background no one even from other country. no culture no there would have been no, no it's, it's not that they weren't allowed to understand <laughs> but, uh, no but I mean in reality like a lot of local yeah. schools in those days it drew strictly from the catchment area of a couple of miles um, particularly in the city uh, of course so it would have been extremely homogeneous um, and this what what I and it didn't surprise me because I knew about it. But when I visited the school now, there were kids from all different cultural backgrounds, um, which was wonderful to see. Mm -hmm. And also, it informed the conversation when we talked about some of the issues that we've spoken about now, about climate change and so forth. It informed the conversation that kind of diversity of culture, diversity of background, and different ways of thinking. And you could see that. And it was just a much richer experience. And it struck me that you know when you look at contemporary Ireland today. That's part, a huge part of the story of what's happening in Ireland and what's changing. Like we have a, a T-shirt now, of course, who's uh, who you know, 
I suppose in political terms he said it himself 20 years ago he couldn't have imagined that it would be likely that somebody you know of a mixed racial background mm -hmm. um, and someone who's openly gay mm -hmm. would could have become Taoiseach and he is in some ways you know politics apart is a sort of a very you know evident living representation of modern Ireland uh, to the world in, in that sense mm -hmm. as well and this is what I found in the school as well and I have to say it was a really kind of a heartening and encouraging visit and you leave in these situations with so many intelligent questions as well about different issues uh, and you leave kind of heartened thinking yeah you know the future's in good hands and it needs to be in good hands <laughs> and it needs to be in good hands that is no longer homogeneous absolutely absolutely because again you know homogeneity just encourages groupthink so yeah. So that sort of diversity, as it will infuse itself into institutions in Ireland, even more so as time goes on, I think people have only begun to see the beginning of the kind of changes that are going to be, and that can only be a good thing. And to that end also, I know there have been some serious housing issues, and there still are in Ireland, Yes. and also that I believe that direct action was taken very relatively recently on direct provisioning that enables some of the people in direct provisioning to be actually able to start contributing to society where yes. they were feeling frustrated. Yeah. No, I mean, look, it, it, it's fair to say, and I mean, you know, you see these things when, when you go back to, I mean, there, and the government have been quite open about it, there are still serious issues to be faced, there will always be, but, but, but there, there are, you know, on the housing front in particular, I mean, the health service continues to be, to be difficult uh, in terms of getting the best possible results out of a very considerable investment um, by international standards. Um, and indeed, you know, the, the kind of the accommodation issue has, is, is multifaceted. Uh, you can see, you know, the number of homeless still on the streets. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there again, it's a complex problem, as you know, Austin. Mm -hmm. There are many causes and many fact contributing factors. Um, one of the things I think in terms of the broader housing issue at home that has been the case is when you think about how quick the turnaround from the depths of the crisis was to recovery, I mean it would not have felt that way to people but in historical terms and by international standards it was quite a quick change to go from, from a situation of negative growth to uh, and you know 15% unemployment within 10 years to unemployment of 5% and annual growth of you know 5% per annum for four or five years on the spin now and there you know that's not a unalloyed positive story there are mm -hmm. issues about balance of growth and inequality and so forth but on the housing side we went from from uh, you know a, a level of housing supply to almost no housing mm -hmm. housing bills on an annual basis and that inevitably introduced the time lag in the system and I think you know without getting in any way political about any of it, that's a structural issue that whoever was in charge was going to have to deal with and mm -hmm. it would take time to resolve. Yeah. When you mentioned some of those issues, uh, I know from one of the interparliamentary visits, I think it was Deputy Kern got the opportunity to vi visit the Shepherds of Good Hope yes. when he was here and share some of the experience when he went back. That's right, that's right and I mean he, you know I spoke to him about these issues too and I mean you know, politicians of different parties, you know, try to come together on these issues as well. I mean, politics can seem very adversarial, but a lot, for a lot of very good work is done in committees like the one that he has been involved in mm -hmm. on how you tackle these issues. And he made the point to me that, you know, there are, again, there are different facets to this around the planning system as well, uh, as well as the kind of issue I was talking about there. So it's a kind of a multi-pronged problem and it has to be tackled with, with, mm -hmm. with uh, different strategies. And success will not be instant but it, the important thing is to address the issues. You talked about the rapid turnaround and it was very much a rapid turnaround mm -hmm. and 10 years ago people wouldn't have believed it was possible. Yeah. 10 years ago 
um, Canada was very helpful to the Irish uh, with the uh, exchange program. That's right. And at that stage, when it got up to about ten and a half thousand visas, they would have been gone in a half an hour. Yeah. Um, that's no longer the case. No, it's no longer the case that they're gone in a half an hour and people aren't poised over their keyboards as somebody like they were. They were waiting to buy a particularly elusive concert ticket as somebody or said house. to me once. Or house. But, but 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 what is the case? Interestingly, is that the quotas are still largely being taken up, right. just not at that. that if you like sort of breakneck exactly but people are still coming in very large numbers and that, I mean it is interesting when you see that and I mean there are, there are a few things I think at work there one is you know younger Irish people are very open to the world they see it as an unalloyed positive to have a, a couple of years experience elsewhere working elsewhere and, and I think myself in an overall sense from an Irish perspective that's a very good thing uh, and we shouldn't see it as a loss the majority of them do return and they return bringing experiences and skills um, that are to benefit that benefit them in their own careers and lives and benefit the country collectively in that sense as well um, and then I think there is just the natural human factor that in a situation where Canada was the most open uh, of the major uh, if you like the major potential uh, locations to go more open than the US and nearer than Australia uh, I think you know there is a critical mass of people who have come to Canada and had these positive experiences and some of whom of course have gone on to stay so that the currency of Canada as a great place to go for experience wise for a year or two is very strong in Ireland every time I go home I get calls from friends who have nieces because that's the age I am now also <laughs> nieces or nephews or sons or daughters who are either in Canada or going to Canada right. more often than not it's Vancouver or Toronto although yeah. they don't all go there but yeah. more often than not it's there and when you say it in that context it is something that I suppose you could say is very Irish or is mm. it very Irish because would you see a reciprocal number of applications of Canadians wanting to go to Ireland no and then would it be fair to say if you were to look and I know you wouldn't have the figures globally you know and exchange programs like this are the Irish more inclined to want to learn and spread their wings than maybe other nationalities and is it something that comes from that's deep within us maybe from having to emigrate yeah it's a, it's a, it's a quite I mean it's a question I've read a lot about and I'm sure you have too and it's one that's kind of endlessly debated and I, I don't think there's any single answer to it I mean it's uh, it's true of course that you know as a nation for often for for very difficult reasons we have a, a history of emigration by generation and that that's often been a very sad story um, you know both at a human level and also in terms of what it's meant for Ireland as a country these this younger generation going as they do I think we have to accept the world's a smaller place mm -hmm. um, you know in a world of instant communication uh, people do not feel as homesick or as far away from home by and large uh, I know I don't um, it has made a huge difference that you mm -hmm. can keep in touch uh, during the course of my career in a way that you couldn't have done 20 years ago and I think that's that's especially true for, for younger people but I think there is also and it, it's one of the reasons for the explosion in global tourism as well people want to sample other experiences they want to experience other cultures other ways of living they are much more open to that in a more globalized interdependent world and therefore there is a tendency to go away more now you could say why don't Canadians do that as much Canada is a very big country one can leave everything one knows and go five or five hours like the US without ever leaving the boundaries mm. of the country so very many people just internally emigrate as right. they say and yes, that's true yes. of the US yes. as well yeah. and then beyond that those that do go away is from what they tell me in the international experience program here uh, by and large go to the US in very large numbers um, 
often after they've done university because obviously there's a big asymmetry in the cost there uh, or they will go to the UK where there are particularly strong historical links or in the case of people from Quebec they may go to France or Belgium some do go to Ireland as well but I think the vast majority don't go at all they stay, they mm-hmm. stay in Canada mm-hmm. and, uh, because there is the opportunity to relocate to a place that is entirely different in, in lifestyle terms you know, like if you leave St. John's and go and live in Vancouver you're in the same country but it's a very different experience and you're a long way from home when we're talking about younger people uh, I know there were some delegations from the education institutes also came over uh, looking to entice Canadian students yeah, I mean, I've had a few interesting experiences. I mean, the whole question of international education is a big priority for us, um, both in terms, of course, at a practical level of attracting students to come to Ireland, but also we believe that the exchanges are a positive thing for all concerned, both at an individual level and, and, and for the, the relationship between countries and understanding each other better as well. So, yeah, so there are, there are quite a number of programs now, um, particularly in Ontario, between Ontario colleges and a lot of the ITs at home, the Institute of Technology, uh, as well as the kind of, you know, more traditional routes from uh, Canadian universities to the Royal College of Surgeons and mm-hmm. so forth. But both Ontario and British Columbia have, you know, pretty structured programs for students to move between colleges. And, you know, I've visited a couple of colleges here during the year and you get to better understand what it means at a practical level. I went to St. Lawrence College down in Cornwall um, uh, on a visit which was really very interesting and we had a presentation from a student who'd spent a year in Carlow IT complete with slides of their experience and it was clear it had been a hugely formative experience for them um, had you know and an almost universally positive one as mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. so there are so many of those types of exchanges going on at that level um, for in addition to the you know more traditional IEC working holiday program mm-hmm. but the educational exchanges spend a year elsewhere I think it's something that's very attractive to students in general I often wish it had been around when I was in college <laughs> myself um, because it just offers them if you like a, a very structured way you know, safely within the confines of their existing degree program to spend a year or a semester in another country, in another university environment with all of those different experiences. And, uh, and of course, Ireland is probably one of the, not only uh, we would like to think one of the more attractive options, but it's also culturally very compatible and, mm. and less of a wrench for people who might, uh, who might have to think about whether they want to take themselves out of their, their, their program too far. If you like. yeah. And of course the Ireland Canada University Foundation greatly facilitates that. Yes, and, and they do indeed. And, and, and then the scholarship program that they have for, um, for uh, you know, the, the, the Gwaelskull school type program mm-hmm. with the universities here to put, to put, um, to put uh, you know, Irish teachers into uh, into the universities here, I think it's a wonderful program, and there's a real multiplier involved in that because um, you know we both know a lot of the individuals who uh, who've done these scholarships, and they go well beyond. They tend to go well beyond um, their role of teaching uh, Irish courses within a particular Celtic studies or Irish studies um, department in a university. They teach Irish in the community. Um, they are often, you know, they often bring with them uh, a background in, in music or in dance or a particular talent that they will bring to, to, to the community as well. So they really are a huge multiplier for, for what Irish culture and the Irish language has to offer. So I think it's a, it's a wonderful program and long may it continue. So Ambassador, let's talk about the elephant in the room. <laughs> I wonder what his name is. Awesome. <laughs> it's Brexit. Um, so I have changes by the day. By the hour, I would say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, since we started chatting, a lot could have happened. 
Yeah, you see, I mean, it does. It, 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 it's, it's one of these things. I mean, obviously, we've talked about it many times before, and it's, it's something that I was but involved in. It was ancient history then. It was ancient history then, and still it goes, um, and still it will go for some time to come, too. But even though, you know, there are obviously very important political developments day to day in, you know, currently in the context of the, of the Parliament, the British Parliament in London, um, and then in relation to Brussels and Dublin as well. But even if things are changing day to day, the basics from our perspective haven't changed. You know, two years has gone into negotiating a withdrawal agreement, um, which, you know, the European Union and the British government have agreed to. That includes uh, the backstop, which we've spoken many times. Um, that backstop has been accepted both by the British government and by the European Union, and indeed, of course, by the Irish government, which, uh, which has all along stressed the importance of this in terms of safeguarding the Good Friday Agreement and uh, cross-border uh, connections and trade and so forth. Um, and that's there, and that's part of this withdrawal agreement. Now, the agreement was signed off and then went to the British Parliament, and the government hasn't succeeded in getting it approved. So it's really up to the British government now to come back and say what it is they want to do from here. It isn't up to, I mean, we see a lot of talk about, oh, the backstop this and we'll have to go or wanting to put time limits on it. I mean, our position on this is, is very, very clear. The backstop is meant as an insurance policy, as we like to call it, an all-weather insurance policy. This is how it's understood by all parties, Brussels, Dublin and the, the British government. It exists unless and until an alternative trade agreement which will ensure that there is no return to a hard border and which will safeguard the provisions of the Good Friday Agreement uh, and the all-island economy and cross-border cooperation. Uh, until there is some other arrangement that does those things, the backstop is there to ensure that we don't have, uh, that, we don't have that happen. Um, we know the reasons why it is, both from an economic and a political and psychological perspective, why we don't want to, to see that happen. Everyone agrees on this particular fact. Mm -hmm. um, the difficulty is that within the British Parliament, there are people uh, who do not want to see themselves trammeled by the backstop in terms of their particular perspective on Brexit. As against that, there are other reasons why there are MPs in the British Parliament don't want to vote, a myriad of other reasons, mm -hmm. why they are unhappy for one reason or other with the particular deal. So a debate which crystallizes around the backstop and the changing or alteration of the backstop as some kind of panacea is, I think, a little bit facile. Um, and from our perspective, the situation remains the same. The reasons why we required the backstop are still fully in place. Um, if the withdrawal agreement passes, and we still think the best option, it, the withdrawal agreement is the only agreement that mm -hmm. can be the best agreement that can be reached consistent with the red lines which the British government put in place from the beginning of the negotiations. We've often said, if there are red lines changed, then change is possible. Um, it's, uh, it's bounded only by the, what's possible is bounded only by what the British government itself has stipulated in relation to freedom of movement and customs union and so on and so forth. So it really is up to them uh, to come back and say what it is they want. Uh, what we all hope is that they will be able to do this and get this sorted and arrive at a position in advance of the, the date when Britain is due to leave the European Union because nobody wants to see, I think, a no-deal uh, Brexit. If it happened, it would be very bad. It would be bad for the Union as a whole, mm -hmm. and indeed for many individual mm -hmm. member states in the Union. It would be extremely bad for obvious reasons from an Irish perspective, but it would be catastrophic from a British perspective. Mm -hmm. So we have to hope that sense will prevail. Ambassador, I know it's an ever-changing story, <coughs> and 
the most recent, given that uh, the Irish Prime Minister was in Davos, mm. um, so at this point in time, um, he came out and stated what I guess if you have a nose on your face you would see was the obvious and that was if there was uh, no deal Brexit there wouldn't be a, necess a necessity to have border checks in place of some form or another and yet the outcry and uproar from what appears to be again what is uh, and maybe it's all, this, every, all is yellow to the jaundiced eye <laughs> but what, what appears to be the most obvious statement possible um, that that reality doesn't seem to permeate so many minds yeah, you see, I, think, I think to be honest, it, it, it's quite difficult because there's been a lot of, and I'd be kind of reluctant to parse too much of what has been said in the last few days because there's been a lot of back and forward and different comments. I suppose the slightly worrying thing would be that some of the British Parliament have tried to seize on comments, um, you know, the Polish Foreign Minister's mm -hmm. suggestion of a, which you know in fairness not everybody is following this with the intensity that we do mm -hmm. may have well have been meant to be a helpful suggestion respectfully for reasons we've gone into we didn't find it a helpful suggestion because an insurance policy with an expiration date is not an insurance policy right. for any intent and purposes so a lot has been said I mean our focus is very much on you know, we are preparing uh, as the Taoiseach has spoken about um, for a no deal Brexit um, the integrity of the single market is obviously a huge issue from our perspective as well as you know the single market is uh, is our market, so so its integrity is very important to us. But we really stick very much to the view that a no deal Brexit is not an option. And I mean, if a no, if if they reached the the end of March, people talk. Some people in the British Parliament are talking about no deal as if it was an event mm -hmm. which would conclude and that would be it. And there might be a little bit of disruption, but life would go on. But that seems to me to forget that a future trade agreement, with which the Irish government has to accept mm -hmm. and effectively can veto uh, because on a future trade agreement everyone has to agree to it. Mm -hmm. That is still to be negotiated and the very issues that are in the withdrawal agreement would immediately return mm -hmm. in the event of a no deal as essential to any future trade agreement. So no deal is seen as a precipice and in some ways perhaps it is but the day after no deal when the fog clears, all those issues remain exactly where they were. So there is no idea that they can somehow, you know, those who want to see the hardest possible Brexit, that if they hold out, you know, and no deal is agreed, that they get to the 29th of March, that the game is over. This is just the first phase of what is likely to be a long and complicated process. Mm -hmm. um, you were here for the entirety of the seat of negotiations, Austin, so you know mm -hmm. that they took eight years. Mm -hmm. Negotiations aimed at building a new positive agreement, which would increase trade for everyone between the European Union and a very friendly partner, about as friendly as there could be in mm -hmm. trade terms, and it still took eight years. Mm -hmm. Trade negotiations are not a sentimental business. Mm -hmm. They're all about interests, they're all about different sectors, they're all about livelihoods, and the negotiations to come on the trade agreement will be difficult and complicated. Ironically, Ireland, more than anyone else in the European Union, wants to see the closest possible relationship between Britain and the rest of the European Union, including ourselves, because that's very much in our interest, mm -hmm. because you know we have such close uh, bonds of friendship, uh, as well as of trade with the UK in so many ways, so many Irish people. Um, you know, make their lives in the UK. So many people from Britain make their lives in in Ireland. We have no interest in seeing any kind of breakdown of relations 
but we have responsibilities uh, and commitments in relation to the Good Friday Agreement and all of the people in the island and the future peace and prosperity of the island as do the British government as co-signatories of the agreement as do the European Union given their huge interest and support for peace the peace in Ireland and the peace process including at a financial level and they're continuing to do so so these issues have to be resolved we have to be sure that we are not going to see any return mm-hmm. you know to the past any return to a hard border but all that that means I mean I don't want to sort of you know suggest that there would be some kind of you know imminent consequence of this in terms of peace but we all saw what happened in Derry last weekend mm-hmm. um, nature abhors a vacuum it isn't good mm-hmm. to leave a situation of uncertainty around such huge life and death issues to allow those who may wish to destabilise that situation to fill that vacuum the backstop is there for a reason Mm -hmm. it can't be limited in a way that makes it inoperative in that sense so it has to stand as it is and I was pleased to see that in the middle of all of the fog of comments that the European Parliament's Brexit Committee said yesterday that its view was that the agreement had to contain as it put it an all-weather backstop um, and that it would only accept an agreement that did. So I understand that there is, you know, always in any parliamentary situation, there can be a certain bubble effect. But the sense sometimes of politicians talking to each other without much cognizance or acceptance or recognition of the reality, the context within which they're operating, there are two sides to the negotiation. Mm-hmm. Um, the negotiation has taken place, the agreement has been reached, the British Parliament has to make its judgment. If there is something that is going to come by way of an ask on that, then we're all ready to hear it but there are some things that are integral to the agreement say the Taoiseach referred to the whole Brexit issue as as in essence existential Mm -hmm. for people in Ireland and it is, you're talking about people's not only their livelihoods but their their daily lives and Mm -hmm. the reality of Mm -hmm. their their lives and all that that means so so that's where it is now Austin, I make no predictions only a not not particularly wise man would make predictions given how this is evolving But, but you know, our hope has to be that in the end um, you know, sense will prevail and that there will be a deal that will allow us to move on with our lives and on to the, in this particular context, to the phase of discussing what the future relationship between the EU and the UK looks like. And as I say, Ireland, of all EU member states, will be arguing strongly for the closest possible relationship that will allow us all to continue uh, with our lives past this Brexit phase as best we can. Well, Ambassador, we have eaten up an hour, believe it or not. Time flies also. Time flies. It's (laughs) been fascinating. So we don't get time to talk about 2019 at the moment. As uh, the year rolls out, we'll catch up on some of those. So you're not going to have to reveal any of the stuff (laughs) that's in the pipeline. All will be revealed. All will be revealed. (laughs) I want to thank you for taking the time because I know how busy you have been and I really appreciate it. And it's been an honour. Thanks so much, Austin.